0: Make yourself a cuppa, grab a comfortable seat and join us in one of life's conversations with your host, Suzanne Barber.
1: Welcome back to Life's Conversations, everybody. It is fantastic to have you with us. Um, I am very excited this week to have an absolute legend with us. Um, I'm not even going to read a bio um, because I'm going to let her speak for herself. But I met um, this particular person um, at a conference. We were at a women's well-being conference um, in Blackburn I believe it was is that right yeah it's just not in good I got it right um probably about a year ago now it feels like that's gone really fast hasn't it um and was blown away by what she had to say um and um thought that it would be a really good idea and she's been very gracious in speaking for free in our Master in Your Menopause group online as well. Um, but we have the incredible Helen McNamara with us um, this week, who is a sleep expert, which I know is something that many, many, many people struggle with and wonder why. So all your questions may be answered on today's podcast. So, Helen, welcome to Life's Conversations. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm just absolutely thrilled that you would take some time to, to come and speak to us. So as you know, um, we will tap into your expertise, but we also like to get to know our guests and kind of, um, you know, figure out what brought them to doing what they do today as well, because a lot of, you know, the, a lot of our guests are entrepreneurs. They run their own businesses, as I know you're starting to, um, to pull together as well. So tell us a little bit about Helen and, and where,
2: you, where you came from, where you were born. Who is Helen? Thank you. Um, So, yes, so, Helen, um, I was originally from the West Midlands, um, and I know lots of people go, but you don't have the accent. My mum still thinks I deliberately tried to get rid of it, but I didn't, I promise. Um, And I was, yeah, brought up there, and moved down south in my teens, um, and, yeah, been down south ever since. So still a West Brom fan, though. That hasn't left the blood yet. Um, So yeah just producer dave's face there kind of go what
1: (laughs) (laughs) he's stopping the recording now (laughs) he's like yeah well, will did that out later probably not (laughs) fantastic and what about school then what kind of things did you did you enjoy school did you
2: yeah so i was a, a really kind of just average student i'd have said you know i i enjoyed school i was happy there always been a people person always a social animal um and did OK. But, you know, um, I think there was I was really fortunate that we moved down south because of my dad's job, which exposed him and us to other experiences we perhaps wouldn't have had. And one of those was um, I was taken to what they called a career analyst when I was 15. Um, and I spent a day in an office with this team in London and they did lots of tests. It's really common these days, isn't it? Um And they, at the end of the day, they came out with a list of recommended careers for both me and my brother. Um, And top of the list was was occupational therapy. (laughs) Wow. Um, Which I I had no idea what it was. And um, so as a consequence of that, I went and did some work experience with OTs at the local hospital Um, and thought, yeah, this sounds good. I'd like to do this. It was very different then to how it is now. They were still sort of making prosthetic shoes and things in little workshops at the, in the basement of the hospital. Um, I went off and helped feed people in old people's homes and day centres and that kind of thing. Um, but thought, so no, I think this is what I'd like to do. So um, my dad said, do you want some help with the application for I went, no, it'll be fine. <laughs> and I didn't get in. <laughs> oh, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just sort of thought, Oh, well, you know, there weren't many places then that you could train. Um, mm. And I didn't get into Oxford Brook, so I just kind of thought I'll move on. And um, ended up going off to college and doing an HND in business studies and uh, worked in London for a few years, project managing, which I loved. Um, had a great time there. Um, really sociable, played into my strengths of sort of organisational skills and people, working with people, which was lovely. Um And then had a bit of a career break to have my children. Mm -hmm. Um, And that brought with it, I think, lots of opportunities that I got involved in various voluntary roles. So I did a bit of Meals on Wheels. I worked, I sort of helped at an old folks club. I helped with youth clubs and church activities. And everything was kind of people focused and everything was sort of social environments. Um, And had you met your husband by then or? Yes, yeah, I met him when uh, uh, in a very um, <laughs> in slough, very, very romantic him. slough, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we were married and living down in uh, in Surrey by then. As um, mm-hmm. uh, stopped and had the kids, did all of this. He was blessing working away, um, and I'd, I had various jobs. All the kids were young, and the main one was I worked in a school for um, autistic children um in an administrative role and i was there for about nine years and again really enjoyed it had lovely team of people i work with and i just remember one day the woman i worked for said i think it would be really great you know as you're developing and you know the kids are getting older you could do this course and you could be the school administrator and i sat there and i thought I don't want to be a school administrator. <laughs> That's not where I want my life to go. It, it was actually a really kind of key moment, I think, that I thought, no. Mm-hmm. And I think oh, in the interim as well, I'd done a diploma in massage. Um, so I'd done quite a lot of study of anatomy and physiology and had a little dabble in that. I've done some night school courses in bookkeeping and badminton. I don't know. (laughs) Wow, so really kind of... (laughs) (laughs) Quite a spectrum. Um, And I just sat there and thought, no, I really, I don't want to be an administrator in a school for the rest of my life. And all this time, I think OT had been in the background, had been niggling away. And I just thought, I think I might just try and be an occupational therapist. So I was... um, Forty three, then, mm. um, and um, I was a late applicant. But I put this application in, and they said, "Come for an interview." Mm. Um, uh, did the interview, and the guy said at the end of the interview, "Well, I'm happy to offer you an unconditional place." Mm-hmm. And I cry, cried and gave him a hug. <laughs> Amazing. So Helen, tell us what that is, because
1: some people might not know what an occupational therapist is, and I know that it's slightly different, isn't it, from physical health to mental health. Yeah. So tell us about what that is.
2: So, yeah, it, it, there's so many ways of defining it, and it's, it's incredibly broad, and that's what's lovely about the profession. But I think the best way I would describe it is it's using occupations as both a mode of recovery and as a goal for recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, We are a profession that are trained both in mental health and physical health. Mm -hmm. Um, We work in hospitals, we work with learning disabilities, uh, we work with older people, young people, we work a lot with people who are recovering from strokes or have got life-limiting conditions. We work in special needs schools um, and we really focus on the person as a whole. That's what I love about it. We're thinking about where they live, who they live with, what their home's like, how do they function on a daily basis and what enables them to function better. Um, So I think most people associate OTs with raised toilet seats and putting rails in the bathrooms, which is really important stuff to enable people to stay as independent as they can for as long as possible. Um, But it is so much broader than that. I, I Probably, actually, if I just tell you the areas that I've worked in through my training, um, that will probably help to give some understanding. Um, I worked um, in community mental health team. So we would do gardening projects, cooking projects. I took them swimming, played badminton, played football. And these are people with long and enduring mental health difficulties um, and trying to help them develop better routines and... Um, life skills really to just Mm -hmm. live better Um, I worked in an eating disorders unit um, which worked both with um, people who were a little bit more further on with their recovery so they were coming in twice a week and we would do again cooking and eating we would also go through sort of um, we'd have sessions looking at particular aspects of what they were struggling with to build again life skills communication Um, I also worked with on a a sort of a day unit. So people would come in from nine till five every day of the week, five days a week. And again, we'd be looking at body image. We'd take them shopping. They'd have to choose their food, cook the food, eat the food. Really key stuff in terms of helping recovery from eating disorders. Mm. Uh, Worked in alcohol recovery. And drug addiction recovery. So that was a twenty eight day programme where people came in and lived and again we would work with them and they'd they'd have to complete a program of a course with us. Um, again helping them understand why they did what they did and finding alternative ways of living and coping that would make them less reliant on the whatever substance they'd been using. Um so that was some of my experience when I was training, which I absolutely loved. Um and really then-
1: difficult I guess from your point of view as well, because, you know, I, I have worked in mental health and addictions and sort of long-lasting uh, mental health conditions and, and things like that. Um, and they're, you know, the kind of the tough cases, if you like. And I know that I, I don't want to minimise that in any way, but they are quite complex cases to deal with, aren't they? And And when you're around that as well, that can be quite difficult for the people who are supporting those people as
2: well. So did you find that or did you... Um, yeah, I think I think if you're not person. affected at some point by people you're dealing with, then you're possibly in the wrong job. <laughs> yeah. um, I think I think I definitely learned, and I think the fact that I went into it older, having some, you know, quite a lot of life experience myself, mm-hmm. I perhaps got some coping mechanisms already, mm-hmm. but there were definitely some people that really like stay with you. Uh, and you kind of still think, I wonder how they're doing now. And, you know, or, or it might just trigger something in you that think, oh, that kind of hit a nerve with me. Um, and we were really encouraged to reflect on that and talk about it and deal with it so that it wasn't impacting on our ability to work with these people. Um, yeah, I think it is brilliant to your own development, actually, to 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 be aware of how you're responding to different yeah. people in different situations.
1: Absolutely. So, anybody that has worked with Helen in the past, if you're listening to this podcast, please reach out and let us know how you do. I'm sure she would love to find out. I would love to know. I would love to know. <laughs> yeah, let us know. There'll be a, a message also. Asked, <laughs> it'll be a a box at the bottom of the podcast that says "Ask Suzanne or Helen anything." So, please, you know, if if there are any is anybody that's been touched by Helen in the past, reach out and let let her know how you're doing. Yeah, love we'll love to hear it. from you. Brilliant. So so sleep then, where, how, what, formulate words, Suzanne, come on. Yeah. Um, I'm very excited. Can you tell? <laughs> it's a subject very close to my heart. So what brought you to sleep then? Because I know that there's a combination of lots of different experiences there, in, your, in your past that have kind of brought you to where you are today. So launching Flourish Therapy, which we're going to talk about, which is very exciting um so so tell us about that and that journey into into sleep
2: therapy so i think i can quite honestly say when i started the journey of occupational therapy i never thought i'd end up as a sleep therapist um it is not something that you commonly see we all know there's a a a real dearth of support out there although there's a growing awareness Mm -hmm. um it was really um so I, once I'd qualified, I worked in a hospital, uh, which I still work at that hospital, um, and I was working on the wards, um, and then I worked um, as part of the oncology team, um, and the person I worked with in that team was also doing a few hours a week in the sleep clinic, and so I said, oh, that sounds interesting, um, and just asked her about it, and I started shadowing her. So, so you worked working on in- health
1: on the oncology unit before you then moved into the sleep piece?
2: Yes, right. I was just working. I was working on the wards, working with patients in in the oncology teams, um, and so I just started sort of escaping from the ward for a couple of hours a week to go and sit in and and find out what all this was about. Mm-hmm. And just thought this is amazing because it's it's one of those areas it bridges physical and mental health. You know, you can't you can't separate them in most conditions. But in, from an occupational therapy point of view, it's very sleep is so relevant to everything that we do um so i got interested following her and then um i started helping out a little bit with under her supervision uh, learned a bit more about it then eventually i got my own clinic once a week um did lots more training and it's just grown from there so at, at the time I, I actually had two jobs i was i developed a program called prehabilitation um which was very new at the time um and i It was a well-being program for people who are preparing for major surgeries uh, for cancer. Um, And I was running a program that was looking at how they cope with their mental health, their sleep, um, their fatigue and the consequences of all their treatment. Mm -hmm. So I was doing that for part of the week. And then the rest of the week, I was working then in the sleep clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did that for about four years. That's an interesting one because obviously that's a topic that's very close to my heart
1: as well, Mm -hmm. from diagnosis through treatment and and how that affects us. So what did you, can I ask what you learned from that? Was there any sort of key learnings that you picked up from that around
2: how people affected or any trends that you noticed? Um, Well, I worked with specific um, patient groups who had, so they were either um, esophageal, um, bladder, um pancreas or ovarian cancers they were the four patient groups that i was working with um, i think it was more about understanding the pathway and i hate using that word it's very kind of you know e i suppose but and i had p- different people respond at different points so mm-hmm you know, just the shock of getting that diagnosis and how people respond to that and being ready and able to just listen for some time and just allow them the opportunity to understand and, and make sense of what's happening to them was very much part of that process because they quite often came to us as just shortly after they'd been diagnosed. They'd probably been told you've got this, you're going to have some chemo and then you're going to have an operation. So they've just got such a lot of information to absorb and i think that's the one big point that people can feel so overwhelmed just by the number of appointments the amount of information the amount of scans and understanding you know what happens next so that was definitely one key area of learning for me and allowing them time to process that i think the other point is when they came to the end of the prehab programme, which was really at the point they'd go in for surgery, and quite often their other treatments had finished by then as well, mm-hmm. they often feel they were falling off a cliff, that all of a sudden all this lovely support they'd had was gone, or it felt like it had gone, and mm-hmm. they were then just looking forward. So I tried to incorporate in the prehabilitation um, how we cope going forwards and what we need to be thinking about and you can't necessarily do it now but just having that awareness that you might feel like this in a few weeks time and it's going to feel really uncertain but what can again what all these things you've learned in getting ready how can you use those Mm -hmm. to go forwards
1: yeah. Oh, this 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 may be resonating with many people listening to that. I know it's certainly resonating with me because that's exactly what happened to me. Okay. Um, you know, I fell off that cliff. Mm. Um, what on earth happens next? You know, and like you say, right through the whole process, you were talking about too much information and, and you get the diagnosis. And you know, for those of you that have have heard my story before, um, you get the diagnosis and as soon as the doctor says cancer, you don't hear anything after that. That's yeah. it. You just, you've, you've shut down. Oh, my, my brain did. Certainly, I can't speak for anybody else. I really didn't hear anything else after that, mm-hmm. um, other than, you know, my my mum's here to pick me up from the hospital because I was in the hospital from an emergency admission at the time. And, and I completely shut down. And then as I went through my treatment, my treatment was, you know, six six weeks long. It was, um, you know, daily radiotherapy and then weekly chemo. And then I had some internal radiotherapy as well, which was truly delightful and mm-hmm. very you know much like childbirth and no dignity and it was (laughs) (laughs) That'll, that'll all be in the book when it finally comes out um but so many people as I was going through that you know I was touched by so many people in the chemo day unit and people that I was talking to throughout the village as well who were incredibly supportive and you know like anything when you start talking about it it's amazing how you notice how many people have been through it um, uh, and there was a, a fantastic hairdresser in, the, in my village who had been had been through breast cancer and the guy who owns the, the pet shop, um, Positively Pets, he'd gone through lung cancer and functions amazingly well on one lung. And, you know, these were all stories that I needed to hear mm. to keep me those positive stories of recovery. But they all said to me, just the exact same thing that you did there is it gets you when you finished your treatment. Mm. Um, that, that cliff edge that you feel like you're on, like, what's next? I am, um, you know, like, oh my God, that just happened. What on earth do I do now? Um, you know, so
2: where did that sort of take you from there once you got to that point with people? Um, we tried to, well, I, I implemented a buddy system okay. so that people who had gone through it and were coping and, and wanted to support others could do that. There was no compulsion, but they had the opportunity to come and share their experience. So I got some people recorded a video for me that I would then share with patients to give them like a story. Um, and others would be happy to like take phone calls and offer some support. So I think that was quite useful in giving them some purpose and some focus afterwards. Um, and it's just interesting seeing how different people cope and and accepting that we do all cope very differently and some people just want to get straight back on with life and and don't want to look back and others really need to look back and process what's happened to them Mm -hmm. um and they want to they want something to come out of it they want you know to make a difference now in that area so just being mindful of that i think the only other observation that always really hit me was I had people who'd perhaps struggled with all sorts of health conditions through their lives, and they were actually quite well-equipped to deal, or they were better equipped to deal with the new bit of news. Mm -hmm. Some of the people who'd actually been fortunate enough to not have too many health problems in their life and to then get this diagnosis were absolutely floored by it. And, And just seeing the difference in, you know, we only really learn our coping strategies once we get into the the really tricky part, times in our lives. And, mm-hmm. and if we've never had those tricky times, then sometimes those coping strategies aren't there and they're learning a lot of new stuff very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope, and I think prehab was was good for that in giving people something to focus on, to feel that they were doing something constructive to help them through. But it was also a little bit of me time. Mm-hmm. It, of all the other appointments and things they had to do. This I hope was a bit of an oasis of time to talk with other people going through the same thing, time to reflect on what's helping me and what else can I do. Mm -hmm. And I always finished my sessions with a relaxation time, um, and which always seemed to go down quite well and they'd all kind of doze off and say how much they'd enjoyed that bit. So it was really good. It's my
1: favourite part of a yoga session as well. Absolutely. That's a, that's incredible. So, so kind of moving into the sleep then, so you were escaping the oncology world to, to get into, to sleep. So, yeah. so let's talk a little bit more about that then and that journey and how that is getting you or got, excuse me, got you to where you are now and what you're doing now. Yes. Yeah,
2: so, I mean, i I hadn't really ever thought much about sleep until I started, you know, sitting in on the clinics and started to think actually sleep is an occupation, you know, just like everything else that we do. And as an OTs, we always see things in the context of occupations and our environment and how they interact with each other.
1: So um, when you say occupations, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw that out there mm-hmm. because occupation to me means that's my job. Yeah. So when you say occupation in the context of occupational
2: health, what does that mean? Well, occupational therapy, actually, so that's, I guess that's the other, we have to be careful. So occupational health is another sort of aspect, which is looking more in in the working world when we consider people's fitness to return to their jobs. Mm -hmm. So occupational therapy would see occupation very much as a holistic. So everything we do, we could see as an occupation, you know, brushing your teeth, doing your laundry, taking the dog out, playing with the grandchildren. Everything we do is an occupation to some degree or other and 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 then it's looking at how that occupation impacts us and how much of our day it takes up and and when our occupations change or our health changes how does that interact so you know someone who i don't know was a gymnast and breaks their leg their occupation of being a gymnast is really impaired Um, And we have to start looking at how that plays out. And then if you break your leg, you're probably in a cast and you've got crutches. So the way you interact with your environment is going to change. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually broke my leg um, just before I started my OT training. Um, Yeah, long story. But I ended up starting first day at uni in a wheelchair but it was a really fabulous insight as an OT to understand, gosh, how does this impact on me? And I often see people at the hospital now on crutches and I always carry their tea for them because you can't carry anything when you're on crutches. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, you just need that little bit of extra help the environment. You know, now you've got crutches as well. It's really hard to navigate what would have been a really easy environment Mm -hmm. now when you're using crutches. So, we're always looking at interaction between the person, the the occupation they're trying to do, and the environment that they're in, and that sleep. So you're looking at that person in terms of their physical and mental health, how that interplays with their sleep, and is there anything in the environment that might also be having some influence, and that could not just physical environment, but social environment.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I had a patient recently... Um, she was fabulous. She did so well, but she, her relationship, I think her partner had health problems. They were struggling. They lived in a one bedroom flat. So he slept in the lounge. So she had to go to bed when he wanted to go to bed and she didn't have anywhere else she could go in the house. So we had to navigate that in terms of her sleep because the it's not an ideal scenario if we're trying to work on sleep, but we have to adapt and we have to work with the environment that she's in, in order to improve her sleep.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Wow. Well, a a it's, it's everything
1: that we do, doesn't it? Like you say, it's a very holistic, it yeah. has to be a very holistic approach and looking at all areas. So, so I guess from, from that then, in terms of, in terms of sleep and getting onto your expertise as a sleep therapist, um, my question would be, or one question would be, because I know that, you know, through my teens and my 20s, I would quite happily stay up all night and then go to work or go to college the next day and just to say function. And that continued probably through my 20s, you know, through the Air Force, would go out, you know, have a really good night the night before. And then probably by about three o'clock, would be complaining that we wanted to go home because we were done in, probably more so for the effects of alcohol and lack of sleep, but maybe a combination the two but as I've got older I have learned more so the importance of sleep and the pace that we're taking in life but if I was to say to you you know finish the sentence sleep is important because you know what would the answer
2: to that be and it's a very big question and very broad because it influences every area of your life
1: mm-hmm.
2: I think we know that you know that when we're asleep so many processes are happening i think we used to think it was just this dormant time when you know everything was just resting but actually there's lots going on when you're asleep Mm -hmm. Um, there's sort of cleaning processes happening in your brain there's you kind of detox processes going on you are laying down memories or kind of going through your learning of the day and deciding what you're going to do with it so your brain is kind of sifting through and putting stuff into memories um, and it's processing emotion, it's processing learning. Um, your immune system is regenerating when you're asleep, so your risk of infections is going to be, you know, affected if you're very sleep deprived. Um, and your, you know, healing of muscles and tendons and bones and things is all going to be happening when you're asleep. So it's really hard to say there's an area of your life that isn't going to be affected if you're not sleeping, Um We know productivity is so much better. Mood is interlinked. We know that if people are suffering from depression for a year, they are far more likely to have insomnia uh, than someone who hasn't. But we also know people who've got mental health difficulties are far more likely to struggle with sleep. So it it really is just such a crucial part to how we function, both mentally, physically, and emotionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I know
1: um, how I function, particularly if I haven't had a good night's sleep. And that's never a pretty picture. But for somebody who is having sustained sleep issues, you know, I guess that that has its own implications on both physical and mental health, can't it? So I had a the the, the sleep issues can lead then to physical and mental health issues and vice versa. So is it it's not one way or the other?
2: No, it's definitely a two-way street. And just on that, sorry, before we go on, a really interesting bit of info I got when I was listening to the fabulous Russell Foster, who is a circadian rhythm sleep scientist, researcher. Um, At five in the morning, if you drive your car, you are more risky than if you were over the limit, uh, alcohol limit. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, your attention is poorer. At that time of day we have very low um level of attention in those kind of early morning hours so um and i think that's just such a good example of how lack of sleep or poor sleep can be just as bad for us as drinking too much or mm. yeah that's
1: really wild isn't it wow food for thought everybody so mm-hmm. if you're a worker and having to drive around at those times in the morning making sure that your sleep is on point is probably something really important. Yes. I would imagine. Absolutely,
2: Yeah. But yes, going back to the, yeah, the, the mental health and sleep. Um, it, it's a two way street. Um, and, and we know there are some mental health conditions that poor sleep is a precursor and it's a bit of a red flag that there might be something coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is always worth addressing your sleep. Mm-hmm. And what are, some exa- what are some examples of those mental health conditions? Um. Schizophrenia mm-hmm. um, is probably the biggest one. Um, and, and also bipolar, we can see there's a there's a there's a link there between sleep deprivation and how we're how the condition is presenting.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and we also know that it can be a precursor to Parkinson's disease. So you commonly see um, sleep problems in people who've got Parkinson's disease. And there are some particular, which I won't go into now, but there are particular sleep behaviours that you might see in people who are about to develop Parkinson's disease.
1: That's really interesting. That's not to say, by the way, to prevent anyone from being scared, that everybody who has sleep issues is at risk of Parkinson's. No, Um, not at all. If you are concerned, please do consult the relevant medical professional. I'll speak to Helen.
2: <laughs> yeah. As I say, this is there's a very particular sleep behaviours
1: mm-hmm.
2: at a particular time in your life. So this is not to say if you're sleeping badly generally, you're going to get Parkinson's. It's not that. It's more a it's more a symptom of as a rather than a cause of. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's that is really
1: interesting. So in terms of. In terms of the sleep, then. Um, so, why did you choose sleep? Then, so you know, you were, you were escaping from. We're just to backtrack a little bit. You were kind of escaping from the oncology ward mm-hmm. to go and, um, play with the stuff in the sleep section or the sleep yeah. ward. I don't know how to. <laughs> clinic. Yeah, the right word. Help me with the right word. Clinic. Uh, so, so the clinic. Thank you. There we are. Uh, brain fog kicking in. Um, so how did? So what was it about that was so attractive about that to you in terms of in terms of working on that clinic?
2: I case. think what I w- did quite a, a number of years on the wards. Um, and obviously, when you're in a, an acute hospital, it's very much physical health we're looking at. And you but for me, I couldn't get away from the fact there was always a mental health component to this. But when you're in an acute hospital, there isn't the time to really address that. And it's not our place. Mm-hmm. I did try to do a little bit of sort of anxiety management with patients. And that was quite acceptable. It was very brief. And I think what I really liked about sleep was it does bridge that physical and mental health. And it gives us the opportunity to consider what's going on in both mm-hmm. Um And that's what I really like about it. And the fact that it, again, we're looking at every aspect of someone's life. So when I do my initial consultation with someone, I will be asking them, what do you do in your days? What do you eat? When do you go out? Do you go out? What's your stress levels like? You know, what hobbies do you have? How do you spend your evenings? What are your mornings like? I just unpick the whole 24 hours with them. Um, So it, it just it feels really OT and it feels like it bridges that physical and mental health mm-hmm. uh, which often can be a bit divided. That's
1: really interesting so if we think about you know because I know as a as a menopause coach how nutrition a good nutrition can benefit menopausal symptoms and protect your body in terms of your long-term health how does that impact sleep?
2: Sorry can you say that again Suzanne i
1: Yeah, no, the the nutrition part of it, because I, you know, when you were talking Mm -hmm. about all the different elements that you ask about when you're assessing somebody Mm -hmm. for the third time, um, you know, I just want to sort of pick out a few of those and see, Mm -hmm. you know, like around nutrition, because that's something that we can all control when we really want to, and we put our minds to it. So how can uh, the food that we're eating influence our sleep?
2: So thinking more about um, timing of eating. Um, We don't get too much. There's not much evidence at the moment around diet per se and sleep. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know eating sugary foods and caffeine is going to raise your body temperature, raise your um, alertness levels. So we would definitely sort of discourage that in the evenings. But I'm thinking more around timings of food. So every cell in your body works on a 24 hour clock. And all the systems of your body have a kind of a best time to be working. So in an ideal world, you will be having a surge in cortisol earlier in the morning, around get up time. Your um, digestive system will want to be working at certain times of the day, but not too late into the evening and certainly not in the middle of the night. So we really want to play into that and reinforce the circadian clock. Because if we keep giving our body all the right messages of what should be happening when, we're going to really encourage everything to work more effectively, uh, sleep included. So I'm more about helping people think about when are you eating? And so many people don't eat breakfast, Um, or they're grazing, they're skipping lunch, you know, there's, but actually just starting to get some routine around your days is really important for kind of encouraging a routine around sleep as well. I often say to people, you know, your your night starts from the minute you wake up in the morning. Whatever you're doing through the day is going to have some level of influence over what the nights are like. Mm-hmm. There's not one thing, you know, it's not, oh, if I drink my tea at this time, it's all going to be sorted. But it's about like we talked about before, those small changes and just keeping that consistency and routine that's just gonna give your brain and body the right signals about when to go to bed. Mm. And this is the thing, isn't it? You know, we we had a chat um, you know, before
1: before the podcast and we were talking about, like you said, the, the small changes. Um because it's really easy, isn't it, when we're having trouble in one area of our lives, i.e. sleeping or with menopause symptoms, that we think that we have to do an all-encompassing massive change to make a difference to how we're feeling when actually it can just be one small thing like thinking about the times of day that you are having that cup of coffee you know we know that it impacts it stays in our system for up to 12 hours so if you're drinking caffeinated drinks Mm -hmm. and you're having sleep issues you know working that back and thinking about well what's the latest time you should be drinking caffeine I'm, I'm hoping I got that right? Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, we tend to say to people, hey, <laughs> try and avoid it after 2pm caffeine if you're struggling with sleep. Um, if you're someone who's quite an anxious soul, then you probably want to reduce it a little bit more because we know it plays into that system. Okay. Okay. I often say though, as a bit of a caveat to people. I think sleep is like diet. You know, if you want to lose weight and you just cut out chocolate, it's very unlikely you're going to lose any weight. But actually, if you, you know, make some changes to your meal choices, you start to be a bit more active and you maintain that for a few weeks, you're more than likely going to see a change in your body shape Mm -hmm. and the sleep's the same. This isn't, you know, particularly for people who've got a really chronic problem, just cutting out caffeine or, you know, Going to the gym a bit more often won't necessarily in itself solve the problem. If we're bringing all of those small things together to build that consistent habit, then Mm -hmm. you're giving yourself the best chance. Um, So I always say to people, you know, a lot of things you've been doing are not wrong at all. They're a really good start. But because you've had such a problem for such a long time, it's going to take a little bit more than that. But Mm -hmm. it's a good foundation. Mm -hmm. So we then sort of build on that with
1: different tools um you know again much like we do in the menopause coaching so we start with one thing get good at that then build in a new habit build it and build it and build it and and like you say it's very much about consistency as well and that's the thing that i think we're not always as good at is it we try something and we feel like after a week oh well it doesn't work so i'm going to try something else instead so we don't get that consistency that our body needs to then form that that good habit i guess would that be fair to say
2: yeah absolutely yeah and that's what i'm always trying to encourage people to kind of play the long game you know again when people are trying to lose weight you know we don't you know you have one day when you eat three buns and two bars of chocolate um but you know that doesn't dictate the result over four or five weeks that it is just one day and it's trying to take the emphasis off that one bad night or that bad week um And again, you know, if you have struggled with sleep for a long time, it's really debilitating. It can feel a very lonely place to be, very isolating. Um, So you do tend to focus more on it and you think a bit more about it, and it becomes this big thing in your mind. And, And that's the other thing, you know, we're building the routine, but then we need to start putting sleep back in its place a little bit and not giving it quite so much attention. Um, and just building on what's going on in the day, that's really going to help this to improve. Mm. Yeah,
1: because I think you know I hear this quite a lot from from the the women I work with as well. And you know, as as we go through menopause, we know that sleep issues can can be a big part of that. Um, and you know, people get really tense around. Oh my God, I can't sleep. How am I going to function? How am I? You know, and it starts off this really kind of whizzy negative spiral. Uh, salt patterns which then makes bedtime really stressful so of course then by the time we're getting ready to go to bed we're really stressed worrying about will i sleep will i not sleep brains whizzing stress response is is kicking in in the body and then of course that makes it all the trickier doesn't it so i guess what i'm asking is i suppose from your point of view there's probably a lot of mindset work around that as well
2: and reframing in terms of how we view sleep as well would that be would that be right Absolutely. Yes. Um, I think, you know, again, it it's thinking about what would a good sleeper do in this circumstance, someone who doesn't really worry about sleep. If they have a bad night, they'll probably get up in the morning and go, oh, I slept really badly last night and I feel knackered. And then what will they do? They'll just carry on with their day and they'll accept how tired they feel mm-hmm. and they'll just assume it will all get better. Mm-hmm because they don't have that history and they haven't built that expectation of a bad night mm-hmm. but the person who's had a terrible night like you say their their whole mindset is what if i don't sleep well tonight i've got that thing tomorrow if i don't get sleep by this time and I, I kind of go back to them and go how long have you had your sleep problem and they'll go oh however many years and have you still got to your job and done your job well yes i have have you still maintained your responsibilities? Well, mostly, yes. I've backed out of some stuff, but generally I've done the essentials. And it's trying to go, okay, can we start to use that as a bit of evidence that although this isn't great and it's not it's not desirable at all, but it's evidence that actually even after a bad night you have functioned. So we hopefully that will start to trigger a slightly different mindset in, okay, this isn't going to be great, but... Do you know, I've functioned on this before, so for now, I'm going to accept the terrible day or the miserable night, but knowing I'm now doing something about it, and then as the confidence builds and the sleep improves, that attention and and vigilance around sleep starts to reduce. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, that's amazing advice.
1: So, what are some of the the most common sleep issues that
2: you come across? Is there, is there is there such a thing as like the most common issues? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So I, so I work in a, a wider sleep team, but you know, I'm the insomnia side of things with two other OTs. we insomnia specialists. So, um, primarily I would work with insomnia. Um, although we do work with nightmares, um, there's a sort of a nightmare therapy program we can do, um, and we do have a number of people who have what we think of as a circadian disturbance, you know, uh, as in they're not really sleeping at the times that we would expect in this part of the world. So um, they end up most typically they're kind of not falling asleep till four or five in the morning and then they can't wake up till two. And sadly, they've been labelled as lazy or, you know, just disorganised. or But actually their body is just set on a different time zone, Um it's not huge numbers but we do come across those and we do work with those as those types of cases as well um and then within our particularly our initial assessments with people we are very much screening to see what if there's anything else that might be underlying and there's quite a spectrum of sleep disorders some might know nothing about some i know might know a minuscule about um but we're starting to unpick, okay, this isn't an insomnia. This isn't a circadian disturbance. There's something else going on here. And it might be some sort of parasomnia that's, a, you know, causing people to do odd things when they're awake in the night. So I've got a patient at the moment who's, you know, broken several bones in their body because they've had night terrors, which means they wake in the night feeling frightened, feeling afraid. They're not fully awake. They jump out of bed, they bump into things, they fall over, and they've break Mm -hmm. bones. There's obviously narcolepsy, which lots of people have heard of. Um, And then probably the other big, big area around sleep is obstructive sleep apnea.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And that's with insomnia. They're the two big ones that we're looking at. So we work very closely with our colleagues um, and we refer with between teams. Um, And we will always be screening for that. So that's the other thing, I think. And and women are at a higher risk of OSA post-menopause. That's interesting. So why is that, do you think? What's the link? Um, I think there's a number of reasons that, I mean, traditionally, we the, the high risk factors for sleep apnea are being male, uh, being overweight, having a large collar size. Um, they would be the, you know, anyone sort of over 50 and particularly 60s, 70s, we would always be looking for that as a possibility. Um, and I think with women, you imagine they're over 50, they've probably gained a little bit more weight themselves um, and their risk factors go up with the hormonal changes as well. So um, that's just something to look out for. It's still relatively small numbers probably, but it is something to be mindful of. And there's a big difference between someone who's got insomnia tends to be what we would say is tired and wired. So they feel like they can never nap. They would love to nap, but they just can't. Mm -hmm. Their mind switches on the minute they get into bed. They can't switch their mind off is probably one of the most common phrases I hear. Whereas someone who's got potentially a sleep apnea will probably feel very unrefreshed in the morning, will feel quite sleepy during the day, will probably fall asleep very easily given the opportunity because they often have a very broken sleep pattern. So they often don't have any trouble getting to sleep, but they just can't stay asleep. Men tend to be woken much more easily by their apneas. They're more aware of waking, but women actually don't always... Present in the same way mm-hmm. um, so we have to be quite mindful of that but potentially if you're waking in the morning and you think you've slept but you're very unrefreshed and you're dozy and really struggling to pay attention then it is worth having it to mm-hmm. brilliant
1: i feel like some of this is resonating with producer dave because i can see him nodding profusely in the background yep yep yep
0: i, I have a question if you don't mind me jumping in um yeah Obviously, what you've just been talking about absolutely hits the mark with me. I am having loads and loads of trouble on the night time. Um, I have had um, an Apple Watch um, for a while. And what actually happens with me is, is um, I get quite upset by the results on the Apple Watch. So I've mm-hmm. just actually pulled one up, a quick one. It says here that um, on the 28th of September, I had nine hours and 22 minutes in bed. And i know for a fact because i went to bed early and it says that i had um rem sleep which was two hours and 11 minutes core sleep which was six hours and 27 minutes and i had deep sleep 24 um only 24 minutes Mm -hmm. would that be a bad rhythm is is that doing me the reason why i'm asking is is because i've been told by my doctor not to use the apple watch which i've stopped using the watch now Mm -hmm. but um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Alan's <not yet>. yeah. <laughs> but, but it's that whole factor of when you're looking at um when you're actually looking at the results you kind of i know i'm not sleeping very well i know i'm mm-hmm. waking up a couple i mean at that night i woke up i was awake for two minutes so i probably sort of woke myself up turned over and then went back to yeah. sleep again or, or went to the toilet or whatever but it it doesn't seem so i'm waking up and I haven't. I'm not refreshed in the morning. I could quite mm-hmm. happily go back to bed and have a couple of hours, and I'll sleep better during the day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know. So how how does that? What I'm asking is is obviously the phases of sleep, and is it um you know it does it matter how much deep sleep you have? Does it matter how
2: much REM mm-hmm. REM sleep you have, etc. So there there is a natural um the the natural sleep sleep cycle. Is, does include light sleep deep sleep and rem and a sleep cycle we know is probably 90 minutes to two hours and that repeats through the night what we also know is the amount of deep sleep you get reduces through the night so that cycle does change and we also know that through the lifespan the amount of deep sleep you will get will reduce um I'm trying to remember. So I think when I last looked at the stats, if you're in your 20s, around 25% of the night is deep sleep. And then by the time you're 70, it's probably about 12% of the night. So it is not as much as you think. What's also interesting is that when you've, it's not always about a sleep debt it's not always about getting more sleep but it's getting good enough sleep that your brain will then take what it needs so that pattern might change a little bit depending what you're in deficit of whether it is deep sleep or rem and your brain's pretty good at balancing that out on subsequent nights in terms of the apple watch i agree with your gp i yeah i wouldn't i don't wear mine at night and um, I've said I've, I've had one patient in the whole time who's found it reassuring. Most patients don't necessarily, and as clinicians, we don't know that anything is tested sufficiently that it's it's valid. So to say that you're in deep sleep or lighter sleep or REM is quite difficult to tell just from your heart rate. Um, because there's, there's sort of delta wave activity that we would associate with certain phases of sleep that you would only pick up on a particular sleep study. Um, I think you're – I still ask my patients to complete sleep diaries. We all do. And I always say, you know, the best measure of your sleep is how you, ref, re, you reflect on it, what you record. How long did I sleep for? Did I wake much? How long was I awake for? And how do I feel in the morning? If you're you're waking up refreshed, you're able to function, you're not reliant on caffeine or other medications, then you've probably had a good night's sleep. Uh, And we don't need to overthink it in a way. Your performance and how you feel is the best measure of your sleep. Um, And I would definitely, yeah, have a chat to your GP and and I don't know whether they've thought to refer you or there's a sleep clinic you can go to, but it sounds like it's worth getting a referral and then just getting a little bit more investigation
0: yeah brilliant thank you just one of the quick question is um one of the things you meant sorry i'm just it. No, <laughs> somebody, somebody else will be sitting
1: listening to this going yeah i have that exact same thought or that same problem or question
0: the the biggest problem that i have when my head hits the pillow is i will go um i'll sort right i feel really really tired my head will hit the pillow and all of a sudden, my brain just goes into a thousand miles per hour. You need to do this. This needs to happen. And it's exacerbated by the fact that if I, in my job, I have to get up some mornings very, very early in the morning. So I might have to get up at like four or five o'clock in the morning to drive somewhere to be there for eight, nine o'clock in the morning. And if I know that I've got to be up, that then prevents us from sleeping because I'm sort of overthinking it. And have you got any advice for anybody when that head hits the pillow and you go, thousand miles an hour have you got any sort of advice on how to how to counteract that or how to help yourself
2: yeah so if i start by explaining what that is and why that happens there's something called the conditioned response you may have heard of pavlov's dog experiment where he associated the bell with food when you spend a lot of time in bed awake because you're struggling with sleep that's what happens your brain starts to associate the bed as a place to be awake So you are like so many people that I speak to who go, I lie on the sofa and I feel really sleepy and I think, yeah, it's time to go to bed now. And I get into bed and ping, the brain turns on. Because your brain's gone, oh, hello, bed. This is where I lie awake and I think and I worry and I angst and I get excited and happy. And it's built that association. So the process of using what we use, CBTI, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Insomnia, is helping people to develop habits that are going to retrain your brain into having a stronger association with the brain and the bed as a place to sleep. The one quick thing I would say is not quick, but um, the common thing that people do, and I think this is the biggest, often the biggest um, shift for people. I would wager if you're tired, you think I'd better go to bed early because I'm tired.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting
2: a great. Okay, are you sleepy?
0: Um, usually yes. I'll I'll be really tired. I'll be thinking, right. I really want to go to bed now. And then I'll I'll, obviously the older I'm getting, the earlier I'm going to bed. I can't Mm -hmm. do the midnight thing anymore. I wish, but I could lie awake till midnight. Exactly. Exactly
1: About uh, him being tired, but also sleepy. Are there two different things?
2: Yeah. So we can all feel tired as we often do. You know, you feel tired because you're busy, mentally or physically tired. But there is a point at which you are actually ready to fall asleep. And that's when the certain chemical builds up in your body. And when it reaches a certain point, it's triggering your brain to know that it's time to fall asleep. What commonly happens is people think I'm tired and logic says, if I'm tired, I go to bed, but they're not actually ready to fall asleep. So then they get into bed, they don't fall asleep, and then the brain starts, they feel anxious. Oh, I haven't gone to sleep yet, I've gotta be up early tomorrow. Often for those people, if they push their bedtime back till then they actually feel like head nodding, eyes going, can't stay awake any longer, they're more than likely gonna get to sleep quicker than if they'd gone to bed an hour earlier. That's the first thing. So that's a very practical, but also in terms of the busy mind, We do need to build habits that are going to prime our brain to know when sleep's supposed to come. And we've got to start dealing with the day and putting the day to bed before we go to bed. And I think in this high-tech, very overstimulated age that we live in, with so many people, we will rush through our day, we'll get everything done, and we often don't pause. The only time we pause is when we get into bed And then when the silence comes and the darkness comes, then the to-do list comes and the what didn't I do? Oh, I'm still upset about what they said to me, or I'm worried about tomorrow, or I still haven't done that thing I'm supposed to get done for next week. If we actually just start to take some time at the end of our day to slow things down, to deal with that stuff, to reflect on the day, to put the day to bed, we're going to reduce the likelihood of those thoughts creeping back in at night. Mm-hmm. So thinking about how do I unwind? How do I relax? How do I put this day to bed is really, can be also really key.
0: Right.
2: And it's well, really interesting you say that Helen, because
1: we do that so brilliantly for our kids, don't we? We have a bedtime routine for our kids. You know, and that might be dinner, homework, bit of relaxation time or have a bath. Um, You know, sit and read a book or have a story and then everybody goes off to bed. But then we get to grown up life or adulthood or adulting as some people like to refer to it. We don't do any of that, do we? Like you say, we just kind of crash headfirst into bed at the end of the day and kind of go, that's exhausting.
2: Absolutely. And I, again, I use that analogy with people quite often about with babies, it's bath, bottle, bed. That's what people do with babies. And you can watch this change in the baby's presentation and how they look. And you can see their body go a bit floppy. You can see the eyes start rolling. You've probably dimmed the lights. You've got it gone in a quiet room. You've got rid of the distractions. There's no, you know, Things whizzing around in front of them anymore we're not shaking rattles we're just letting them be and then we put them into bed and we are priming their brain to expect sleep at this time and you're right we don't really do that very well for ourselves so really prioritizing that time in yeah. the evening even if it is just half an hour of i'm just going to turn everything off and i'm just going to read a book listen to music if you like meditation, go for it. If you like to do a bit of stretching or a bit of yoga, lovely. It's got to be what works for you. But start to like claw back that time for yourself and try not to see this as a punishment. Oh, I've got to stay up longer and do these things. This is, about, yeah. this is my little bit of time now to just slow things down and enjoy a bit of quiet time before I get into bed. Thank you. Brilliant. thank you, Helen. So I've
1: just got a couple of a couple of other really quick questions, and then I'm going to let you go about the rest of your day because I am very aware that we're we're holding you back with all of our questions. But hopefully, we'll get you back because I still have so many questions to, to <laughs> that, would be, that would be really helpful. Um, so I guess that um, so the final question in terms of help for people. So if if somebody is starting to to struggle with their sleep, maybe or you know, how would somebody recognize or maybe if you could finish the sentence, you might need
2: help if. If you're waking frequently, if you're struggling to get to sleep, if you're waking too early and unable to get back to sleep, or you just feel like your sleep quality is really poor to the point that you are struggling to like enjoy your life and function as you would have done. Mm-hmm. then you probably do need to do something. I mean, the clinical kind of um, diagnostic criteria for insomnia is difficulty getting to get into sleep, staying asleep, waking too early, at least three nights a week for at least three months. Um, so, and I do caution people because we know we can have bad patches of sleep, and we're very aware there is there's a difference between an acute insomnia, which is a short-term problem. And it's more than likely linked to a particular event in your life that is most likely going to settle down in time. But there are for those people that that acute period does prolong. And when you're getting to two or three months and whatever triggered it has kind of sorted itself out and gone away, but your sleep is still a problem, then that's the time that you would need to seek help. Unfortunately, I have many people coming to the clinic who've suffered for decades Um, And they've perpetuated this problem through the way they think and the way they behave unknowingly and quite innocently, but getting quick, you can hopefully, you know, mitigate some of that and get get things back on track a bit quicker. Brilliant. Thank
1: you. So that would be go see a GP or alternatively, we might be able to find Helen and her her new adventure, Flourish Therapy. So tell us about Flourish Therapy and where people can find you and your Brand new
2: sleep clinic. I'm very excited for that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I just really like what I do, and I know there's there's not enough of it around, um, and I wanted a bit of flexibility. I still work in the NHS, but was trying to do a little bit of both and and also work kind of on my terms. So the NHS is brilliant, and I, I, I like to think we provide a really good service, but there are boundaries to that. Um, and I'm really... One of the things I've done in recent years is I did a postgraduate um, study in behaviour change because this is what we're all trying to do. You know, we all know what we should do. We all know the things that are good and bad for us, but it's really hard to put it into practice sometimes. So I I really wanted to give opportunity to help people not only understand why they're struggling to sleep and what's going to help, but actually support them in What changes do I need to make and how am I going to make the changes? Because that's the really hard bit. Um, So, yeah, so I just I've been mulling it over for some time and and I've been working a little bit in the private sector as well. And it just seemed a really good time to say, do you know what, I I think I'm ready to sort of offer my services um, uh, in a private capacity as well as in the NHS. So um, I'm available for sort of offering one to one cbti cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia Mm -hmm. um, a, a sort of fixed number of sessions that i i love working in person and that's one of the reasons i'm doing this but i'm also obviously still very happy to work online with people um i've also done some workshops on sleep so for sort of small community groups or for businesses to to kind of optimize people and and get in before there's a real problem sort of educate and enable people to manage their sleep well so it doesn't become a chronic problem so that's the kind of thing that i'm about to start offering
1: love it so where can people find your stuff then so if somebody is looking for you where would we find
2: you so uh, my website which will be live um in october um is um i have to think about it it's also new <laughs> I'm testing you know flourish-sleep-therapy.co.uk fantastic and are
1: you on socials as well yet or are you not
2: quite there yet uh not i mean i am as myself but not as flourish but i will be very soon yeah so you, by the time this goes out i hope i'll you'll be able to find me easily
1: Fantastic, Helen. Thank you so much for your time today. Like I say, I've still got a million questions, so I'm hoping that we'll get you back at some point to uh, to talk a little bit more about you um, and and sleep. If anybody else is is struggling with sleep um, and is listening to this podcast, you know you've got Helen here. You can talk to your GP, but also if you've got questions um, for Helen, please do drop them in the comments. Um, in the in the show notes, um, it, it's all there for you to be able to access. So we do like to hear from you. There'll be an ask Helen anything and an ask Suzanne anything. So please do engage with that. Um, and we'll be able to do um, some minisodes to answer those questions for you as well. So, Helen, thank you for your time today. It's been
2: really lovely to speak to you. Thank you. No, thank you. There's so much to say. I could talk all day, so you need to shut me up. But uh, it's been really lovely. Thank you for having me and I hope it's helpful to people.
1: You have been listening to Life's Conversations with me, Suzanne Barber, and my wonderful poddy pilot, producer Dave. Of course, if you're worried about any physical or emotional symptoms you might be experiencing, please do contact the appropriate clinical professional. Alternatively, you can get in touch with me on my website, Barber Coaching, So that's b a r b o u r coaching.life forward slash contact. Or you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Just search for Suzanne Barber. If you'd like to learn more about managing your peri or perimenopausal or menopausal symptoms and protect your long term health, please come and join us at our supportive, wonderful Facebook group called Mastering Your Menopause. Also, if you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, then like and subscribe. And of course, leave us a five-star review. That's what keeps us going, so don't forget. Also, tell your friends, tell your family, and even tell the dog. We'll see you next time on a next episode of Life's Conversation.